Well, good morning, Westmount. And it is indeed a privilege to be in God's house once again to worship and lift the name of our Lord higher and higher. It's a privilege to be here, privilege to see each and every one of you out this morning, and I trust that you have been blessed thus far, and we'll take a moment now to continue in our worship as we go to God's Word and hear what He has to say to us today. So we've been going through 1 John, or the books of John, we've been in 1 John for quite some time, and at this point, or to this point in the epistle that we're going to look at, you see on the screen there, there has been a few instructions that have been given by John. There are warnings that were issued by John. There's also assurance that was given to his readers. The instructions that he gave were in concern with the apostolic message, the character and condition of the fellowship of the believers, and the meaning and implication of what love is. The warning part that we've seen before has been directed against profession without practice, against the world's deadening influence. Assurance have been, has been given of the true believer's fellowship with God and his victory, the victory of the believer over the world and the world system. In the passage that we'll be looking at this morning, there is that same triple-strand instruction, warning, and assurance that he is going to continue to give to the readers. The instructions, of course, mainly concern the Christian's relationship with God and the truth about God and his word. The warning is against an insidious error propagated by false teachers. And the assurance is with or concerns with the validity of the Christian experience in Christ. In this section, 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 to 29, and, we'll, and you will see something similar in chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. The crisis which is called forth from this entire letter, from the beginning, John was presenting a crisis, and it comes to fore in these verses, in, these, in this passage. The lines are sharply drawn. There's a sharp, divisive line between truth and falsehood, between Christ and Antichrist, between confession of Christ and the denial of Jesus Christ. Those who have an anointing from the Holy One are those who are true Christians, and those who do not have this anointing are the pretenders. So John shifts his argument from refuting. He's going to continue to refute the falsehood here, but he does it in a different manner in the passage that we're going to be looking at. 
instead of presenting the truth in its in this entirety, he's still going to do that, but now he's going to focus on what the falsehood, what the false teachers, what the enemies of the cross, what the antichrists look like to give us a better understanding and a better grasp of who these people are, what they represent, and how we ought to go about our approach to these individuals. And he does so, of course, by calling out the errors of their ways. So let us look at verse 18, a few verses before we go any further. He writes 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from among us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Lord, we are living in a world that people are denying Christ. Some have professed Christ in the past, and are now enemies of the cross. God, I pray that as believers, you'll open our eyes, and may we be submerged even more and then drench ourselves in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we be able to see those who are enemies and may we continue with every fiber of our being to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord to this world that is rapidly deteriorating, rapidly moving further and further away from anything that is remotely close to being godly, upright, and moral. Lord, we as believers, you have called us for this purpose, Lord, to stand and be counted among the few, to stand firm and what your word has commanded us to stand on. God, give us the grace, give us the strength to stand against opposition, come what may, whether it be politicians, whether it be people out there in the world, whatever it is, Lord, give us the grace and the strength to stand firm and to continue to abide in Christ, to abide in your word and use it as our defense against the evil one and against the enemies of the cross. Lord, open our hearts to receive your word. Open our minds. May we be receptive 
May hearts be changed, Lord, for believers. May we grow stronger in our faith. And if there's somebody here who is not saved, God, may they come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ today. For Christ's sake, amen. Enemies of the cross. Enemies of the cross. The first thing that I want to highlight about these enemies is that, as we see in verse 18, their coming marks the last hour. Their coming marks the last hour. John says, it is the last hour. The word that is used here is eschatos, which is translated in our English language to being last. It has other nuances as well. It also means final or last, as I said. And the word is used extensively throughout the book of Revelation. One example of that is Revelation 1, verse 17. And this is in reference, of course, to Jesus Christ himself. John, same author, writes in Revelation 1, 17, Fear not, exclamatory, fear not, I am the first and the last. It is a boundary word that points to the future in the sense that God himself, God himself bounds history with the beginning and the end. So in other words, God is the author of history. God is in control of history. He's the alpha, he's the omega, as John explicitly states in the book of Revelation. John states that there has been chatter about the Antichrist, but in this last hour, which was at the point or time when this book was written, first century, around the first century AD, there are many. And we look in our society and we think, man, there couldn't be more Antichrist ever. And yes, that is true. But John was facing a plethora of Antichrist, even in his day and age, as early as the first century A.D. John said, you heard of the one, the singular, the Antichrist. But I tell you, there are many. They're Antichrists. Imagine how much the number has grown since this time. And we don't have to imagine that, Westmount, because we see it. You walk, you see it. You go, turn your TV on, you see it. You look on your phones, you see it. It's right out there everywhere. People are anti-God more than ever before. In Acts chapter 2, verse 17, Peter uses the same term. In the last days, God will pour out his Spirit. On all flesh, of course, this is a quote from Joel chapter 2, verse 28. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. But in these, at this present time, God is speaking to us through his son, the author of Hebrews, writes for us. And then, of course, Paul in 2 Timothy 3 talks about the evil that will persist in the last days. So here are a few implications that I want to bring to the fore. 
the children of Israel lived in anticipation of the coming of Christ, of the coming of Messiah. Some of them missed it even though it figuratively slapped them in the face. And since the birth, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, the Christ, the church, we as believers have been and still should be living with eager expectation and anticipation of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. That is, we are to be expecting Jesus Christ to return at any moment. That has not changed in the history of the church. It shouldn't change. However, it is safe to say, it is very safe to argue that believers today are living with less and less expectancy. The more the Antichrists are rising innumerable amounts, it seems like the expectation of Christians and believers for the return of Christ is growing less and less. Live every single day, folks. Live every single day as though Christ would burst through those clouds at any moment with the myriads of angels that we hear about in Scripture. Live in that light Live with that expectation. Live because this is the last hour. These are the last days. Why should we do this? Because this could happen at any given time. Apply this truth to what has been said by John in chapter 1. This expectation ought to, when we live in expectation of the return of Jesus Christ, it ought to enhance our knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. When we live with this expectation of the return of Christ, the imminent return of Christ, it ought to enhance our fellowship as believers, eager to be in the house of God to fellowship together with God and the believers. It ought to increase our love, increase your love for one another. It ought to increase your love for God. It ought to spur us on to live a life in full obedience to Jesus Christ, to full obedience to the Word of God. Paul told the believers at Thessalonica, chapter 1, verse 10, to wait for the risen Savior. Why did, why did the apostles and the early church, have you ever wondered why they had such an effective ministry? Why did they have such an effective ministry? Why did, in Acts, they were described as turning the world upside down For the cause of Christ. I will argue. That is because of this truth. The early church. The apostles. The early believers. Lived a life. 
in eager expectation of the return of Jesus Christ. They lived as though they knew they were living in the last days, in the last hour. They knew that Jesus Christ could return at any moment's time. And I've made the argument in Acts when the angels came and said, why are you guys standing here gazing in the heavens? I believe the disciples thought Jesus was going to make a quick trip to daddy and say, okay, I did what I had to do and I'm going to just go back. And they said, no, go do the work. Yes, live in that eager anticipation that Christ is coming back. But go do the work that he has called you to do. They wanted, the early church and the apostles wanted people to know about this God. They wanted the people to know about this Christ. They wanted the world to know who he is, what he has done for them. And wanted them to know that he is coming back. And he's not coming back as a baby in a stable, in a manger. He's coming as the victorious king. And you don't want to face that person. You don't want to face him. They wanted people to know that, folks. And that is why their ministry, I am strongly convinced, was so effective. Because they knew that they had to tell people about God. Yes, it was commanded, but they knew it. So just in case you missed it, what I'm saying here is your view of the return of Jesus Christ, the imminent return, physical return of Jesus Christ has significant monumental impact on your witness and on your walk. If you knew that Jesus Christ would come at a twinkling of an eye, you wouldn't be living a life of disobedience. If you knew that Jesus Christ was returned right this instant, you tell mommy, you tell daddy, you tell uncle, auntie about Jesus Christ. Because we know that after the return comes the judgment. And we don't want them to face that. I hope we don't. Paul told Titus about the grace of God that redeems us And makes us a particular people, a peculiar people rather. But then he says this in Titus 2.13. Looking for that glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Look for Jesus, folks. The church is too consumed looking for every singular event that says, yes, there it is. At end times, there's the earthquake. There's a tsunami. There's this person that's puffing up himself looking like the Antichrist. We are so consumed looking at every physical and natural disaster that we're missing what we're actually supposed to be looking for. It's Jesus Christ. Go read Matthew 24. Jesus expressly says, when you see all of these things happening, they're going to happen. What did he say? Look for more? No, look up. Look up because your your redemption is near. We're looking for the temple to be rebuilt. We're we're looking for the Antichrist to to appear. We're not looking for the regathering of Israel, folks. We're not looking for earthquakes. 
as I said earlier, our famines and all of these natural disasters, we are looking for Jesus Christ. We're looking for Jesus Christ. We're looking for the imminent return of our Lord and our Savior. John realized this and he says it. I'm not writing these things to you because you don't know the truth. It's though it's a reminder to them. When he comes, he's coming suddenly. He's coming in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Do you believe this? Do you actually believe this? If you do, you're going to live this. You're going to live this. The enemies of the cross, they're being embarked or being revealed in the world. And the more of them that are rising up is a mark, John says, that we are living in that time, folks, when Christ's return is very imminent. Another thing that is true about these enemies of the cross is that they communed with believers. Look at verse 19 again. They went out where? Not from the nightclub. Not from the bar. Not from the supermarket. They went out from among us. But they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all, they all are not of us. They communed with believers. And I will add, they are still communing with believers. I see this as a both dangerous and heartbreaking statement. The danger about this is the damage that these individuals can and are causing in the church of Jesus Christ. It's dangerous because most believers today are utterly oblivious as to who these people are and how to spot these individuals. Believers are oblivious because they're lacking the knowledge of Scripture. That's why we can't pinpoint these enemies. We don't know the Word of God. We're not immersed in God's Word, which we'll get to eventually when John touched on that point. But that's why we're oblivious, folks. So they sit with us, they commune with us, they fellowship with us, And we're oblivious because we don't know the word. We're lacking knowledge in scripture. Our knowledge of God is limited. And our love for God, those of us who can't spot them, is lackadaisical. That's why. The enemies are these enemies, John says, came out from their midst. What does this mean? These were people that were once professing Christians, verbally, of course. But they had some action to it, obviously, because that's why it's so deceptive. They participated in many things in the local church. Today, they go to seminaries. They're seminary students. 
on fire academically. I know some. Personally, I know some. There are elders in the church. There are teachers in the church. There are missionaries. There were pastors. There were lay men and women. They sat with us in church week in, week out. But now they are enemies of the cross. Folks, I know such people. You mingle with these men in Bible school, in seminary, and to hear the heartbreaking news, and you see it on social media and how they react towards Christianity, it blows your mind that this individual once sat next to me in a Bible class. It blows your mind that this individual sat next to me in church. They partook of the Lord's table. They were actively involved in various ministries. They were with us, John says, but they were not of us. If this were the case, they would still be in church. If they were off us, they would still be sitting here. They would still be proclaiming Jesus Christ. They would still be actively involved in the fellowship with God's people. But they were never off us. They had no part in our fellowship. They had no knowledge, clear knowledge of God and the Word of God. They were not abiding in Christ, our Christ abiding in them. They weren't abiding in the truth. They had no love for God or God's people. To put in simple terms, these individuals, and John makes this explicitly clear, they were never saved. And you might say, that is very harsh. It's truth. And you can take this up with John when you see him in glory. Not my words, it's his. They were never saved, folks. Plain and simple, they were never saved. They had a form of godliness. A deceptive form of godliness. But they were denying God and the power of God. That's the danger with these individuals. The heartbreaking part of this, I would surmise, is because we know some of these individuals. We saw the passion that some of them displayed. More passion than even some of us who are genuinely saved, who are saved. But we developed good rapport, good friendship with these individuals. And now they vehemently deny Jesus Christ. To this church, to this Westmount, I say, be on guard. Watch out. They are still in our midst. They are still among us. They are not off us, but they are still among us. And I'm not talking about the wolves in sheep clothing. I'm talking about the people that are so entrenched into Christianity that they're deceiving themselves thinking they're actually saved. Watch out. Be on God.
God. They communed with us. They also communicate lies and deceit. Verses 20 to 26. We won't read through it, but just to bring your attention to those passages, or those verses. John found evidence that the period in which he was writing was the last hour in the prevalence of unbelief and opposition to Christ that he was facing. Again, going back to verse 18, as you have heard that Antichrist comes, even now there are many, many Antichrists. I've touched on this before, just to, but just to give you a little bit more information as to the plural versus the singular use of the Antichrist. The former cometh, the latter is already comes. Is already come. The singular refers to one personal embodiment of evil to be manifested at the end of the age. The plural refers to those, even as early as John's day, embodied the anti-Christian spirit, and were in a sense a former, a forerunner rather, of the eschatological anti-Christ. Here are a few things that I want you to note about enemies of the cross. They are devilish. John, of course, the only New Testament writer to use this term, Antichrist. And it means one who opposes, one who stands against, or one who stands in the place of Jesus Christ. Jesus spoke the falls of the coming, rather, of false Christ and false prophets in Mark 13, verse 22. And Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 reminds us that there's a falling away that is coming. And the man of sin is going to be revealed. The man who is going to exalt himself against God and against his Christ. He sits in the temple of God and exalts himself as God. This man is coming according to the work, or the working rather, of Satan. But God, but Jesus Christ will slay him. The many antichrists are described as heretical teachers whose activity threatened the fellowship of God's people, and the proponents of Gnosticism are included in this description. A very We looked at that at the beginning of this book. These were the main anti-Christ, the enemies of the cross that John was dealing with in his day. But these people are devilish folks. They are devilish. But they are also divisive. They're divisive. They were never genuinely a part of the community of God's people. Theirs was a connection of outward, formal connection. They were never saved, as I said earlier. They've never, they've gone through, they may have gone through the rituals of baptism. They may have partaken of the Lord's table. 
They may have sang on the choir, lead various ministries again, as I mentioned earlier, but they were never a part of the local or the universal body of Jesus Christ. In 1 Timothy 4 verse 1, that passage reminds us that in the latter days, some will depart from the faith giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of what? Demons. They're devilish. These individuals who will seek to divide the church of God, distort the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and turn people away from going after Christ. And you have heard it said, now I say it again, we ought to be on the watch. We ought to be on the lookout for the enemies of the cross. And I'm talking about them infiltrating the church. It's not hard to spot them out there in the world. It's very easy. It's when they decide to come in and infiltrate, that's where the danger comes in. They are very divisive, but they are also very deceptive. John asks this profound question, who is a liar? Who is the liar? Not a liar, because we all fall into that category if he had made that statement. He said, who is the liar? The liar is anyone, and note that word, anyone who denies that Jesus is Christ. Anyone who denies that Jesus is Lord, anyone who denies that Jesus is God, the Son of God who came in the flesh, that is the liar. The master of deception then is the denial that Jesus is Christ. And if if you deny this fundamental yet profound truth, of the word of God. It is beyond a shadow of a doubt. Come with me with any argument, any statement. You cannot be saved. You cannot convince me that you're saved. You cannot convince me that you're a believer, a Christian, a follower of this word if you deny Jesus Christ as Lord. Period. It's impossible. You can't be. This puts into perspective why John starts off the letter in a very dogmatic fashion, proclaiming and professing Jesus Christ as he really is, the Son of God, God in flesh, that which was from the beginning. Every single aspect of the life of the church hinges on who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us. So to deny him deity, to deny him that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, we may as well pack up, go home, it's good seeing you. And never come back. Sell the building. Find something better to do with your time on Sundays and Wednesdays. Everything hinges on who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us, folks. Remember they taught, these Gnostics taught that Jesus was just a mere man. He wasn't Christ. He wasn't God. Conceived like any other human being, which we know 
how conception worked from our standpoint. So he was marked off with all the imperfections that we have. Then the Christ, two separate entities here, Jesus and the Christ, descended on him, which is Jesus, at his baptism and departed right before he died. This is their teaching, the Gnostics' teaching. So this historical Jesus, according to them, was not identical to the Christ. They're two separate entities. Folks, this is heresy at its highest. This is heresy to the core. To deny that Jesus is Christ is denying the Father-Son relationship. And by default, you're denying God the Father as well. It's not just denying Jesus. You're denying God the Father. You're denying that relationship that existed in eternity past with God, between the Godhead. That unity within the Godhead. The construction of this part of the letter implies that Jesus Christ is eternal. And if he is not eternal, then God is not his Father. And Jesus Christ obviously is not the Son of God. To deny that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, as I said, is to deny God himself. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Why is this? Why is this? Simple. Jesus Christ is the one who reveals the Father to us. He reveals the Father to us. And if he has no connection with God the Father, how can he reveal someone to us that he has no clue about, he has no connection with? Denial of the full deity and humanity of Christ is a denial that Everything that Christ claimed to be is a lie. And to deny this is to deny any claim, any right, any fellowship, any relationship with God the Father. The only way men can have the Father is a confession of the Son. Paul makes that abundantly clear in Romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 10. They are destructive, these enemies of the cross. The intention of the heretics was to seduce the people of God from the truth. Again stated in verse 26, These things I have written to you concerning them that seduce you. That wants to mislead you, that's the word that is being used there. And it indicates, as used in the original language, a seduction that this seduction, this was their occupation. These individuals, they live to seduce and lead people away from God the Father and lead people away from the Son of God and divide the church of God. This was their life. That's what John is saying here. They had nothing else to do but to mislead people 
from the truth of God. Now here is a description of some of them. You can fill in the blank, if you will. Some of them go from door to door, knocking. Of course, one of the reasons behind that is to complete so many hours within the year. Some of them publish pamphlets. Some were black and white. Back in the islands, they ride bicycles while they were in their black and white suits. Some of them have their own Bibles to propagate their skewed misbeliefs and views of who Jesus Christ even is. So you read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. They put on shows, some of them, about miracles and healings. Waving coats and flashing all sorts of nonsensical things. Some of them have sinister smiles. Preach in front of thousands of people without ever opening the word of God and say, thus says the Lord. Some of them write books and articles. And the list goes on and on and on. Folks, these men and women are enemies of the cross. They can parade all they want. They can't fool the true believer. And they shouldn't fool the true believer. Because we know the truth. We know the truth. These people are enemies of the cross. And to say, have the audacity to say, I am saved, I am a Christian. And don't believe who Jesus Christ really is is absurd and is an oxymoron because you can't be saved and deny Jesus Christ. It doesn't make any sense. It's anti-biblical. And this equals an unregenerate heart. All we have, all we are as believers come through Jesus Christ. So we've seen that the enemies of the cross, their coming marks the last hour. We've seen that they're destructive. They communed with us. They're infiltrating the church. They're infiltrating God's people. We see how they communicate lies and deception and deceit and, and falsehood. And their nature is demonic and devilish. So how do we combat this? Well, John doesn't leave us hanging without bringing a solution to the problem. In verses 27 to 29, John presents for us the defense, our defense, the Christian's defense. But the anointing that you have received from him, from Christ, that's the him that's being referred to there, abides in you. And you have not need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you. Abide in him. Verse 28, And now, little children, abide in him, 
so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame of his coming. John already had told his readers that they have an advocate. We saw that earlier in the chapter. And here he's telling us, and he was telling them at the time, that they have another priceless spiritual possession, a divine anointing, which is an emphatic contrast with the Antichrists. The phrase is used metaphorically of the Holy Spirit. And this is, of course, the receiving of the Holy Spirit upon conversion and a direct rebuttal of what the Gnostic taught. They received some kind of special anointing that gave them enlightenment. John is saying that the claims of these teachers, these heretics, about being anointing is false. He said, however, you believer, you have the true anointing, not these men and women who are parading as though they're elevated above all of us spiritually. You are the true anointed one. You are the ones who have the Spirit of God permanently indwelling in you. You have the Spirit who is a gift of God, who is your seal until the day of redemption. This Abide this anointing isn't something temporary like their teaching. It only comes on them momentarily. This is a permanent, permanent anointing. He stays with you, believers. He remains with you. He is your seal, as I mentioned, until the day Jesus Christ comes back and receives us unto himself. And this ought to be a statement of assurance for us as believers. Yes, there's enemies of the cross out there, but we have an advocate. We have the indwelling Spirit of God within us. So that with this anointing, we can understand spiritual things. We can have spiritual discernment. We can show us, we can realize, and we can come to a knowledge of when someone is devilish, when someone is divisive, when someone is destructive and deceitful in the church. We have the Spirit. But not only that, we abide in the Word of God. The Greek word, or the Greek of this verse, begins with an emphatic use of the personal pronoun. And thus John sets the readers against the heretics. As for you, let that abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. Let the gospel message of who Christ really is abide, permeates your entire being that which you have heard from the beginning. The truth concerning the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, the truth that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, that he went to that cruel cross, that he bore our sins, 
that he is the one who makes peace with God the Father for us. Let that truth abide in you. Let this message abide in you. Let it continue in your hearts, in your thoughts. And it shall continue on with you. Abide in the word. Abide in the word, but abide in Jesus Christ. Abiding in Christ includes both a union and communion with him. And the word assumes that we are in Jesus Christ. It's not making an assumption that we aren't. It's assuming that we are. And what it commands is that we shall cling tightly. We shall cling tenaciously to Jesus Christ. That we will draw our strength from him. So when the heretics, when the enemies of the cross are infiltrating and they're coming, we abide in the strength of Jesus Christ. We draw our strength. From him. We are in constant communion with him. And we abide in him. Why? Because he is coming again. We abide in him so that we will have confidence in his coming. John said, I don't want you to shy away. Have confidence. And interestingly, the word confidence here means freedom. Of speech and is connected with two friends who freely unload their burden on each other. Freely unload their burden on each other. It speaks of unreserved confidence, courage, and boldness. It speaks of glad fearlessness of those who have an assured conscience. That's the confidence we should have in the return of Jesus Christ. No shame in his coming. John said we'll not shrink away by his coming. By having our hopes taken away, we won't look at the coming of Christ as man. All hope is lost because I've lived an ungodly life. I've lived a life outside of Christ. We have confidence in his coming because we have been redeemed. We are not condemned. And we are not disappointed in our hope. The enemies preach and teach another gospel, which by default, from Paul's argument in Galatians, isn't a gospel at all. It's the gospel that deems them eternally condemned. Let them be accursed. If they proclaim anything else than what you have heard from us. And John goes, not John, Paul goes even further and says, I myself, if Paul, me, comes before you and present to you anything else other than the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. Even if an angel claims that they're coming from heaven doing this. Let that angelic being, let me and that individual be eternally condemned. Strong, strong statement. So our defense, again, is God's Spirit that is given to us through His Son. 
God's word that we are abiding in and it abiding in us. It's God's son. But we have a duty to oppose the enemies of the cross. Second John chapter 1, verse 10 and 11. John says, and it was read early, earlier for us by David, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, the gospel of Jesus Christ, do not receive him or her into your house or give them any greeting. And that's how you read that and you're like, man, that's harsh. So when the Watchtower people come, I shouldn't say, God bless you and have a good day. Yes, that's what John is saying. So when the white shirts and black pants come, I shouldn't. Yes, that's what John is saying. Don't entertain them, folks. Why? John tells us why. Because if you do this, you're partaking in their wicked works. Don't entertain them. Don't accept them. And we must reject them. And for some of us who are socially, social media active, this will mean you're going to block people. You are. You will have to make that decision. You're going to have to unfollow or mute and unfriend. Reject them, folks. You cannot tolerate people smearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Compromise because, oh, I know them and I'm going to feel bad or they're going to feel bad. Reject them. Reprove, rebuke, renounce, but most importantly, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. The enemies are everywhere. They're in government. They're in the church. They're in the supermarket. They're in the stores. They're all over. But the command remains the same for us. And with the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit, we're still supposed to make disciples. We're still supposed to be teaching people to observe the things that they've been taught. Proclaim the gospel. That's the only change. That's the only thing that's going to change them from enemies to friends. And you might be here and you're feeling good. You're not saved, but you feel good that, man, I've never denied Jesus Christ. I've never had these weird thoughts like the Gnostics about who he is and his humanity and divinity. I don't believe what the, the Watchtower people or the black pants, white shirt guys or the, the smiley face dude on TV. I don't believe that stuff. So I should be deemed a friend. Well, I have news for you. If that's you and you're not saved, by default, you are an enemy. But that can change right now. That's why Jesus came. 
We celebrated Easter not long ago. That's why he came. We were all, we here who are believers, who have the anointed, anointing, were all once enemies. But it's only by the grace of God, Jesus Christ saved us. And now we are friends. He can do the same for you. Believers, abide in Christ. Abiding the word. Utilize the Holy Spirit of God that is within us. That is our only way of combating what is out there in the world. We can't win the battle on wit, on academic education, um, from an academical standpoint. We're highly educated, so I can outbattle this individual. No, folks. It's the Word of God. It's the Holy Spirit of God using us and using the Word that is in us to defend the faith. That's the only defense we have. And as I said before, and I've repeated it and I'll say it again, be on guard. It's easy to spot the enemies out there in the world. You can close your eyes and point randomly and you're going to pick an enemy of the cross out. Guaranteed. It's when they infiltrate the church. That's when we need to watch. This is too precious, folks. This is too precious for us to let anyone come in here and distort, divide, destruct, destroy what God is building in his church. Father, sober reminder of the world in which John lived, but also the world in which we are living in. And may by your grace and your strength, we fight the fight that is set before us. We abide, we remain, we stand firm on the word of God. For Christ's sake.